At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. They showed me their pictures from their trip to San Diego, and I was a little uncomfortable. I was like, man, I need some sun. Where's it been? Uh, But I am so glad to be here with you this morning. I want to settle a debate right now because I talk a lot about Michigan, okay? Michigan sports, Michigan, you know, football, basketball. But I know there are Michigan State fans here. So, So, show of hands, who here is a Michigan State fan? Okay, we do. We do have some Michigan State fans. Uh, do we have any Michigan State grads? Anyone are going to school at Michigan State? Oh. It's not any easier, even though it happened in first service, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. I'll see you guys. No, <laughs> no uh, so we have a lot of Michigan State fans. But also, do we have a lot of Michigan fans? Show of hands. We got some Michigan fans in here. Yes, we do. So we got we got both. And our last focus of our vision spotlight is actually on Michigan State University and University of Michigan. And one thing we've been praying about uh, as a church for years, well before even I got here, is, man, we want to make an impact on the university campuses because these are the areas where people are, are going to be trained and built up as our next generation leaders. And so we have felt that conviction to want to plant campuses up in Lansing and, and over in Ann Arbor to make an impact on those schools, on those communities. And so each week we've been talking about different vision spotlights, areas that we can support this year in generosity to help out whether uh, our church budget and be able to cover the gap on that. Uh, Detroit in our recent campus, uh, international national missions. And, and this week it's about planning churches at University of Michigan and Michigan State. So final week of the spotlight, if this is something that you feel called to give to and be generous to. In your bulletins, there's a QR code. You can go ahead and click that and you can give online or you can give in our giving box in the the back. But regardless, thank you so much for your continued generosity and we are eternally grateful for you being able to support in that way. So that being said, uh, let's jump in to talking about Christmas traditions. I know we all have different Christmas traditions. And I was thinking through some of my favorite Christmas traditions. And I had mentioned in the past that one of our Christmas traditions were we would go to the store and we'd have our kids pick out a new outdoor decoration. So we had talked about the uniqueness of our decorations. We have a pink unicorn. We have a flying pig. And we have a dragon. Okay? So those are some of the ones. The other ones did not survive too many years. But the, the thing is, that's one of our favorite traditions. But I was really thinking, probably my favorite Christmas tradition with my family is decorating the Christmas tree. There's just something about going into the garage or basement or attic 
and getting down those dusty boxes. And every single year, I say, why did I put it on the top shelf? Like, why? And so you're, you're trying to get the, the boxes down, and then you, you put them out, and you start to open them, and you're like, wait, we're missing one, right? There's always the one rogue box that's went missing, and so you look everywhere. It ends up being in the exact last place that you think, and, and, and there's just something about turning on Christmas music and, and opening the boxes and setting up the trees. I just love it. I, I love being able to do this with my family. But in our home, we have one little difference. We actually don't just have one Christmas tree that we set up. We have two. We have anyone who sets up more than one Christmas tree? Show of hands. Okay, so you got like your little trees. We have two full-blown trees. We don't do any of the actual trees. We did that one year, and it just smelled really funky, and it was messy. Okay? So we ended up abandoning that. We have fake trees, and we have the one upstairs... And the one upstairs, it's got like the snow on it, and it's got consistent lighting, and it's really more just uh, to be visually and aesthetically uh, very nice. It's got like the silver and the gold and the gray ornaments. It's all, it, it just makes sense, okay? So you got that one. But then in the basement, we have our tree that's in the corner. That it's extremely confusing. We got the, the different colored lights and, and half the strands don't work. And so instead of throwing them away, we, we, we take the strands that have some of them working, shove them into the tree, and then we make it work because we don't want to go buy new lights. And, and then we have all the sentimental gifts and ornaments that we've collected over our lifetime. So you have like little Winston's handprint and you have, you know, the kid's first day of class ornament. And, and you think about it, if you do the math for how many ornaments are created in schools and churches and parties, we're talking five to ten ornaments a year per kid. So we have hundreds upon hundreds of different ornaments that we decorate the tree with. And then we have random ones that when you go to Frankenmuth, you got to get an ornament, you know. So we have this tree that's filled with all the memories and sentimental trinkets that we've collected over the years. And we love it. We love being able to do this as a family. And so when I think about tradition and, and what tradition stands for, actually traditions play an important role in our lives. I mean, it, it helps us. Traditions help us remember where we came from. They help us learn and remember who we are. They mark the seasons. They're, they're important in our lives. But one of the realities about tradition is sometimes tradition, if we're not careful, we can use it to ignore reality. For example, we talk about Christmas. We talk about the holidays. We talk about joy. We talk about peace. When sometimes we ignore the harder parts of the season, the more tension points that come with the Christmas season. Because the reality is that many people during the holiday season, they're going through some hardships. They're going through pain. There's a lot of stress on the home. There's a lot of, a lot of tensions I shared this a couple of years ago. I haven't checked if it's still true today. But a couple of years ago, I preached a Christmas message 
and, and I was reading statistics that over 50% of people in the United States are still paying off their last Christmas's credit card bill. That, that people are drowned in debt. That they're struggling in different areas. And the problem is that amid our Christmas traditions and the Christmas cheer, that, that we forget that life is hard. And, and life is a struggle. And this wonderful time of year that should be wonderful, some of us just don't feel that way. And, and then in the midst of this, in the Christmas story, you have magi and shepherds and angels and Jesus being born. And, and people say, what does this have to do with me? You know, I just walked through a divorce this year. I, I lost a loved one. This is the year that things have been so challenging for me mentally and work-wise. See, there's a lot of pain in, in the world. And, and the question is, does the Christmas story have anything to do with that? You know, we're in the series, Fulfilled. And, and in this series, we've been talking for the last couple weeks about what it looks like, the story narrative, through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've covered a lot. We've, we've covered a lot of different, different topics. And it's been good. And, and I think it's important that we cover different parts of this narrative uh, of the birth story. And, and today, I actually am going to take us in a direction that probably people have never heard. Probably this message is going to be one of the few times you hear this in a lifetime because the part of the story that we'll be focusing on today, we tend to skim over. We tend to not want to highlight. We tend to not want to uh, put all our attention to it because it's the hard part of the Christmas story. It's the part of the story where there's grief and there's mourning and there's pain and there's brokenness. But in the midst of this, we need to remember in mourning, in mourning, whether we have Jesus, if we have Jesus in mourning, we can turn it into hope. Because in mourning, in struggle, in pain, we can turn it into hope only through Christ. And so Matthew's been talking through the story, and actually we're going to be digging in and talking about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel, and this, this section that we'll be talking about is going to be built around four movements. And so these four movements will help us better understand that in Jesus, our mourning can turn into hope. And, and so to first understand that statement, that in Jesus, our mourning can turn into hope, we have to understand the reality of evil, that evil does exist, that evil exists not just around us, but, but within us. Look at what scripture says in Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained 
from the wise men. You know, we've been talking about Herod a lot. And King Herod, he actually was given power around 36 BC. So he was given this great authority, and he was still underneath the guidance and the power of the Roman Empire. So he had this connection with Mark Antony, and Mark Antony, uh, he was uh, kind of in this fling with Cleopatra. Well, did you know King Herod was in the midst of that too? Well, then Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they end up going and they die in the Battle of Actium, and, and they lose to Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus ended up giving King Herod more power. He gave him more authority, more wealth. So here King Herod, he wants to hold on to his power. He wants to hold on to his wealth. He wants to hold on to his authority. And here's this, this king that's supposedly being born. He wants him to die. So he's going to use anything in his power, any resource necessary to take out Jesus. So it should be in no surprise with his paranoia, with his greed, that he would order the genocide of babies. Two years or younger. And we see here with King Herod that in the midst of this story, again, of joy and, and angels singing and and wise men from the east, and this child born in the manger, Matthew, he shares it. And I, and I wonder, as I study, as I read the Bible, why in this amazing story of the child being born that would save the world, why did Matthew share this horrendous act of children being murdered by a ruthless king. Have you ever thought about that? I believe with Scripture, and this is so important, and we all have our, our uh, subconscious leanings, right? We lean towards, you know, the God of grace or the God of law, or, or we lean towards the areas that make us feel good. And we tend to skim over the areas that, that kind of make us uncomfortable, right? And, and, and we see that God is perfectly truth and grace. And so he doesn't glaze over the evil in this world. In the story... He didn't just say, okay, everything's good and we got rosy cheeks and we're hopping around and holding giant candy canes. No, instead, he emphasizes the darkest part of the story and brings us face to face with the reality of evil. And, and you, think about, you think about Herod, he is the archetype villain. He's the perfect villain for this story. And Matthew doesn't hide him. But we tend to. We tend to skim over it because it hurts. It, it's hard to read. Because Matthew knows that for the story of Jesus to bring hope, it can't skip over evilness and brokenness and oppression and the darkness of this world. You can't skim over it. You can't put your fingers in your ears. 
If Jesus, if, if Jesus has come to do something about evil and sin in the world, then we have to acknowledge that there is sin and there is evil in the world. This is a significant part of the story because evil exists and that was what was going on at the time of Jesus. Jesus was born in a world where a king had the power to slaughter children. And we might say, oh, that is messed up, that is crazy, that is wrong. But that's still the world we live in. We still live in a broken world, even with the technological advances and the nonprofits and the, and the ministries to feed the world, and, and even with further education. We still live in a world where there's evil, there's oppression, and sin still dominates the human landscape. And people will do whatever they can to stay in power and stay in control. So we come to Christmas, we like to put a, a, a nice face on it, we try as a culture to act like the world isn't broken, but, but I believe that the more we understand evilness in the world, the more we'll understand it's not just there, it, it's even things that we struggle with ourselves. It's not just on the outside, it, it, it's, it's within us. There's this man... His name was Alexander Solvetskin, and he was an author from Russia. And actually, he survived the Soviet gulags, and that was essentially like a Soviet concentration camp in, in, uh, near Siberia, and, and he survived these horrendous uh, experiences, barely survived, wrote about it, and it was interesting in one of his famous writings what he said. I'm going to put it up here for you guys to see. Look, look at what he said. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, and even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. You see, Alexander observed what Matthew brings to our attention. And, and really, Christmas, it, it isn't about hiding the reality of evil. It's about dealing with it. It's not about putting, it, putting a basket over it. It, it. It's showing that evil has affected our world, and there is great pain, and there's great hurt. And even not just looking on the outside, but, but looking within. Understanding we all have sinful nature. We all have things we struggle with. We all have sins that we battle. And I think about with us understanding the reality of evil, it's easy to look at the news and say, that's evil. It's harder to look in the mirror and say, man, I have some evil within that I got to work through. Some things that I got to process with. I got unhealthy motives. I got unhealthy greed. I got unhealthy uh, images that I think I should obtain. And so the reality of evil, we can bring it into our hearts and say, what sin in our life have we got comfortable with? Have we allowed to fester? 
have we allowed to, to hide in the corner? And we say, man, I, you know, I attend and, and I'm a lovely husband or father or grandparent. That's just another thing that's just been there. You know, there are two people in this world. The people who are, are very uh, self-deprecating, hard on themselves, live in shame and guilt. They achieve and achieve, but they just they, they live in a shame that, that I don't believe is biblical because we have freedom with Christ. We have joy with Christ. We have fruits of the Spirit with Christ. And then we have people who, who they are very comfortable with being lukewarm. There's a great comfort in like, yeah, but, you know, I still show up and, and I serve a little and, and I'm, a, I'm a good person. I even, I even give a little. But there's that sin in their life. And so I want to challenge everyone in this room, whatever it is, whatever it may be, no matter how big or how small, we are called to come to the truth, to face that sin, face that evil in our life. And as we confront that evil, how are we supposed to respond? So again, in Jesus, our mourning turns to hope, but we first have to understand the reality of evil. The second thing, the second understanding or movement that should emerge in our life is what I call the role of lament. The role of lament. Has anyone ever heard the term lament? Okay, lament is a, it's not a normal term we use in our English vocabulary. Some of us might, but it, it's not really a normal word that we'll see on a weekly basis. But essentially lament, it, it's, it's sadness, it's crying. And, and, and I think it holds a, a deeper meaning than we think. Like for example, you know my kids, they fight about everything. I don't know, your kids are perfect, right? Like not mine. Mine are not. And so they fight about their Pokemon cards. <laughs> they fight about um, what books we're going to read at night. Well, we see that there's fighting time and time again about where they sit in the car. They fight over the middle seat. I guess that is a place that is precious to them. So we got to put them in their place at times. And, and we see everything, though, that's not fair, that's not fair. And, and I say this line, and I've shared this before, but one of my things, when I know it's not a serious issue and they're just being kids, I, I lean over and I say, do you want some Whamburgers with your French fries? And then they, eh, they get mad and they, and they tend to, you know, do you want me to call the ambulance? And then they, they tend to be more irritable, which is probably not the best thing. That's not the type of lament that this is trying to communicate. Lament is so much deeper than just, I want to sit in the middle seat. Lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And as we're about to read in Matthew, it highlights from the, from the prophecy of Jeremiah, the lamenting, the passionate expression, the brokenness of sorrow. Let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. You know, Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel, and he was actually known... As the weeping prophet. And Rachel, one of the many forefathers 
wives, she, she saw her children. And, and what that's saying is when, when the Israelites were taken out of Israel and taken to uh, exile in Babylon, the images of a mother weeping for her children, weeping for the children of Israel being taken away. And so what they're doing here is they're actually comparing it to what happened with Herod killing the children. As, as Rachel wept in Ramah, a, a city north five miles of Jerusalem, as, as these exiles went through this small city, there is weeping as they left their nation. So in, in Israel... In Bethlehem specifically, this small, insignificant city where these children died because of the anger and the paranoia of a king. So it says that, that Bethlehem, they wept like Rachel for Israel. These mothers of Bethlehem weep for their children who died. They, they make this connection and they draw this parallel. And it all comes back to a deep lamenting. You see, lament is an important piece of even our story. It, it's a very important part because lament is not running away from evil. It's looking right at it. It's staring directly into the heart of the pain. And Matthew doesn't run from the sorrow of what Herod did. He invites us to stare it directly in the face. Again, this great, exciting, joyful story. Oh yeah, children, two, of young, two and younger, were murdered. You know, I think about this lamenting image. And... Some of us, we, we can relate to this. Have you ever been in a place where you were so broken, you were so hurt, you were so consumed with sin and, and grief that all you could do was just weep? Have we ever been there? And, and you, you, don't, you don't feel like you can move you don't feel like you can think. You don't feel like you can sleep, but all you want to do is sleep. And it's either one of two things. One, because of, of something directly with you or something you're witnessing outside of you. Maybe it's something within and you've done and made a terrible mistake. And you're like, what, what was I doing? What was I thinking? How, how did I get to this place? Or maybe you just turn on the TV and you watch the news. And you think, man, there's so much evil in this world. And, and, and we say things like, man, our world is broken. Our world is messed up. There is pure evil. And I believe this is important for us because we need to sometimes stare at evil to understand how dark this world can be. Let me give an illustration. Imagine you and your family, it's Christmas Eve, everyone's there, everyone's spending the night, you're going to celebrate Christmas together. And imagine this with me, let's say you guys got in a huge fight, okay? Everyone's yelling, everyone's upset, 
Some of this might, this might not be an image of illustration. This might be reality. Uh, and so everyone goes to bed. Everyone's upset. You wake up the next day. No one's saying anything. It's just awkward. Have you been in one of those moments before? It's like everyone knows what happened, but no one wants to talk about it. So people are, you know, having their breakfast. They're carrying on like everything's good. And, oh, how's the weather looking today? Oh, you know, what are we going to do? Until that one person in the family, and you know who that person is, says, okay, okay, are we going to talk about what happened last night? Like, come on, let we got we to gotta figure this out. It's the elephant in the room. It's very uncomfortable. We got to talk about this. Some of us, we've been that person. Some of us, we've been the cause of the fight. We've all been there. Luckily me, I'd never cause fights, ever. You know, I just ascend into the room and, hello, how can I create peace? You know, <laughs> so not to brag, of course. But uh, <laughs> in this case, when the, finally the one sibling says, I can't, have, I can't take it anymore. Let's work through this. And as awkward as it is in the beginning, it's, it's also a, there's a giant sigh of relief, right? Because it's like, okay, whew, okay, we got through this. It was awkward, and now the healing can begin, and now we can go on to have a, a good Christmas. And as hard as it is to work through that problem, you got to work through it to get to a place of peace. Lament acknowledges reality. It's a way we face it head on to discover that we can't run away from pain. Instead, instead we got to engage it. we got to embrace it. Because once we face it, and once we embrace it, and once we come to terms with it, that's when everything changes. Because that's when hope emerges. You see, when you realize that there's evil in the world, and once you come to terms that, you know, we are very broken, and we need to cry, and we need to lament, and we need to be open and, and, and real about this, then there starts to be an emergence of hope. Then we start to see everything change. Look at uh, Jeremiah 31 and Matthew chapter 2 and how hope starts to emerge. This is what it says in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back to the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. There is hope. Matthew goes on to, to share likewise. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So again, we have this parallel again with Jeremiah and the Israelites that are taken away and they're taken to Babylon. And then you have Jesus who has to flee for his life to Egypt, probably up to about a year. And, and then there's this word of hope that the Israelites will return back. And then in, the, in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, the change where hope starts to emerge is the very first couple words. 
Herod died. When Herod died, the evil that sought to kill him was no more. And because of that, he could actually return home. This archetype of evil and oppression responsible for the, the death of so many children. But his reign and his tyranny, it did not continue. It had an end date. And because that evil did not continue, evil did not get the last word. And hope emerges. Jesus could return home. Anyone here like superhero movies? Anyone? Okay. Don't be shy. I know you guys do. Okay, all the kids. All right. Well, I guess I'm a kid too. All right. Uh, I loved Captain America in the movie uh, Avengers Endgame. Loved it. And if you've known or you've seen that movie, there's a scene where it seems like all hope is lost, right? His, his team is all beat up. There's an army coming his way to destroy him. And, and he stands up. He, he's bleeding. He's bruised. He can barely walk. And it just seems that he had hit rock bottom. Any good superhero movie, they allow the character to hit absolute rock bottom where you wonder, is there any way out of this? I, I, what's going to happen here? And you, you, you make the audience think, man, There's no way out. There's no hope. And right when there's the lowest moment, something happens. In that case, Captain America's, again, watching this army come his way of these alien monsters. And he hears on on his earphone a voice. And it just says this, on your left. Some of you have seen it. You're just like, okay, what does that mean? And then suddenly, people start to appear. Soldiers, armies, superheroes. And they, and they start to come out in droves. And you wonder, man, when we thought hope was lost, now hope emerged and there was once again a resurgence. And so I think in the midst of the worst part of Jesus' story, the absolute parse, part, Evil doesn't get the last word. And here in Matthew, this is, this is foreshadowing. Because when Jesus was born, that wasn't it. 33 years later, in the darkness of him going to the cross, when things seemed to be at the worst, there emerged hope. He didn't hide from the darkness. He came to be light in the midst of the darkness. He didn't run from people that were broken. He ran to sinful and broken people. Some of us, we wonder, like, man, would would God even want me here? I was talking to a lady this week, and I said, hey, you should come to our Christmas Eve service. And she said a line that maybe you've said or you've heard. (laughs) Man, if I walked through the doors of your church, the skies would open up and fire from above would consume me. And maybe consume you too. 
And I laughed and I said, <laughs> I said, that's not true. It's not. So we're all broken. We're all messed up in our own way. We all have a story. The doors are always open. Jesus' hands are always open. And I would love to see you there. Because we see with, with Jesus that he went to the cross. This beautiful story of a child being born with magi and, and angels praising and shepherds and, and gifts and a manger. It didn't hide the evilness. And that's the same with Jesus on the cross. He didn't just ascend into the heavens smiling with a six-pack and a sword. That's how I will go, of course. He went through nails and blood and being scourged 39 times. He went with carrying wood up to the top of a hill to be seen in shame, to die a slow death to the right and the left with people who were criminals, with soldiers mocking him, people in the crowd mocking him, with the people to the right and left who are dying also mocking him. He could have called angels down from above to, to take him off that cross, but instead he continued marching through the darkness and the pain of death, and he did it for you. He did it completely for you. And we're reminded that as sin is strong and heavy, he rose, he resurrected. And when he went and ascended into heaven after three days in the grave and then the 40 days uh, being with his disciples and appearing to them, that wasn't it. Even though hope emerged, we still live in a sinful world. And Jesus said that he will return. The final act is the promise of the return. Look at Jeremiah 31 and Matthew chapter 2. This is what it says. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And in Matthew chapter 2, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. You see, even though he escaped Herod, evil still existed. And even though we have hope, and for those of us who have given our lives to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit and we have peace, we still live in a very broken world. But Jesus is coming back. And, and we see that when he returns, he will fulfill his promise that there no longer be pain or sorrow. Look at Revelation 21. 
It says that, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And just as the exiles were promised, hey, they'll be able to come back. You'll be able to return. So we have a promise from God that as we face life, we will not have to deal with these things anymore. You see, throughout this story, we see the movement from mourning to hope. We see this movement that despite Herod's evil and the suffering that came, there is still hope and a return to the promised land. And there's a movement that we're all invited to today. We all have that invitation. We all have that opportunity. And my hope, for those who don't know him, that today you, you take that invitation. You don't wait another day. You make today the day you give your life to Christ. And for those of us who are, who are in Christ, we, we come to, to the truth that we live in, in a world that has evil. And yes, sometimes we need to lament and be broken over it. But there's that resurgence of hope and the promise that we must never, ever forget. Because in Jesus, mourning turns to hope. I want to make this practical for us. I want us to leave with this. Where in your life right now are you facing evil and sin? Where in our life right now? Because I, I think about us and, and taking the words and applying it to our life. And, and we face some heavy heavy stuff on a daily basis. Some of us, it's, it's completely outside of us. Some of us, it's things that we just continue to repeat. We continue to battle with. But regardless, no matter where we stand, my prayer is that we are able to remember the hope that this season offers to us. We remember that in the midst, and there's a lot of it, we're called to face evil. We're, we're called to stare right in the eyes of it and declare that there's always hope in Jesus. Let's never, ever forget that this season. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.